0: you're listening to K A L X Berkeley 90.7 FM university and community sponsored radio and this is method to the madness a show from the public affairs department at K A L X that explores the innovative spirit of the bay area and we're always happy to see data about the bay area because we love it so we want to understand it more and of course the 2010 census data just came out and i thought i'd read you a few statistics that are interesting about our diversity we have 3.5 million white people in the Bay Area. That's a slim majority, 52%. So congratulations to you. 1.2 million Asians, 1.3 million Hispanic, half million black, and a million and change of the rest of us, the rest of the world population all thrown together here and experimenting with the American dream. For many Bay Area residents whose families immigrated relatively recently, the challenge of adapting to America while preserving a link to your heritage is a tricky task. But one local woman has made it her mission to create a new model for how to pass culture down to future generations. Please stay with us to hear her story. And uh, today we have with us
1: Yaldemadaber.
0: Yaldemadaber from Golistan Kids. A preschool in West Berkeley as the first preschool of its type in is it the country Yep. in the country it's a Farsi immersion program so welcome Yalda thank you and so Yalda we'd like to start off the program about um, talking through the problem statement so you you kind of came to this realization that there is a problem and you want to start uh, you started a nonprofit to solve the problem so give us the problem statement
1: well, it happened organically, actually. Um, I had my first child. Um, I'm married to an American man, and I live in Berkeley, and I don't have any local family, Persian-speaking family. So I um, I was working, um, but after a while it was hard to manage working, and I needed child care for him, and I couldn't find anybody. I couldn't find a daycare, a school, a nanny. I was looking everywhere. Though they are out there, the nannies, but... Um, I put a posting in the Berkeley Parents Network, a listserv here, and um, the only other person that responded was another parent looking for the same thing.
0: And you were looking for a Persian speaking nanny, is
1: that right? Anything, any type of childcare that would be Persian speaking. I asked, you know, I said a nanny, a daycare, co-op, preschool, anything, and that was the only response I got. So she told me, "Well, I'm looking for the same thing. Will you share with me what you find?" and um, we ended up meeting, and from there, started a play group. Um, and the people in that play group—they are all looking for the same thing. They, and basically, what we needed was support in teaching our children our language and passing down our culture. Uh, I think we all lived in the sort of vacuum; we didn't really know many Iranians locally with kids. And um, and from there, it became this little. A regular weekly gathering and then it became a co-op and had a life of its own, but we weren't even incorporated.
0: So um, a lot of the... I consider you an entrepreneur. I mean, really, you're really <laughs> starting a new thing from scratch. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the entrepreneurs that we speak with on the show have this moment of inspiration where you mentioned you kind of had competing professional things in your life and you had to make this choice. Now, how did... Was there this moment, this magical moment, where you are like, "Yes, this is what I am going to do"? Because that's it, a big cliff to mm-hmm. le- leap off of, right?
1: Yeah, no. There, w- it, it, it sounds crazy. I, as far as I can remember, I don't think there was a magical moment. I think it really did take a life of its own. By the time, by the time that I we made this decision, because we did it as a group, I wasn't the only one involved. We had that play group, original play group, was very involved in the co-op. Um, but by the time we got to that juncture, um, I was working my butt off, and I had a newborn child, and I was just in in survival mode, basically. Um, and it, it was really, a, I got to a place where I had to make a decision, which one did I have to stop, either my work or the school. And I couldn't give up the school because I felt like it was too important. We, we were all really intertwined in it by that point. Our kids were just really thriving. And they began to have strong identities as Iranians. And it was amazing. It had exceeded all of our expectations in terms of the impact that it had on our kids.
0: Now, one of the things that I think is really unique about it is that you're teaching your kids Iranian culture. Mm -hmm. But you guys all were born and raised here, or or raised, you're mostly American, right? So you're first generation, is that the right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Some of us have lived there a little bit. Most of us have. It depends. We have a little bit of everything. Yeah, some of us lived here our whole lives.
0: Okay, so you all had this very um, strong desire to teach. And was it Iranian culture? Was it Farsi? What was the act? Was it the language mostly?
1: I think for me, it was the language. And I think it was more than that. It wasn't even. It was about our kids, but it was a lot. It was about us too. It was, you know, when you, as you know, when you have a child, um, especially for young mothers, but for both parents, it's very isolating. And so here you are in a phase in your life where you feel very isolated. You're just. It's a whole other world. That you're just in this little bubble, and you're already feeling a little bit uprooted before you have children. When you're bicultural. But then you have a kid, and you're just like, well, Where do I belong in this world?" So I think it gave us a sense of of rootedness, or you know, it g- gave us some some like a place where we f- we could connect with people that were similar. So that was as a, from a parent's perspective, um, and for our kids, I think it was more about language. I think so. I mean, language and culture are really very intertwined as well, very connected.
0: Sure. So um, this original play group was meeting. Were you guys meeting in the same place every time?
1: We were meeting weekly in a park. So you'll see the natural progression. We'd meet weekly in a park, and then the rainy season started. And they were like, well, what are we going to do now? We didn't want to stop. So we contacted the Persian Center. One of our founders, um, her sister was involved with one of the founders of the Persian Center in Berkeley, and they let us use their space once a week and then we we're like well this is great but i personally i was like well i still need the child care this is really fun but you know this isn't. so we brought in a teacher and then a parent would rotate with the teacher and then eventually brought in a teacher's aide who's actually still with us now and um and then we made it daily a daily program and started to rent the space of the persian center and then we outgrew the persian center very quickly
0: yeah how many uh, kids were there when you guys were just at the persian center
1: We had, I think about eight, different kids had different schedules, so I think we were about eight to ten kids total that were involved. Um, But we had a waiting list at that point. We weren't even anything, you know. Um, It was just
0: word of mouth. People found out about it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And then, even then, people would email me and ask me, people from other cities would ask me if there was anything similar in their area. And that's when I did the research. I found out there wasn't anything anywhere. And very early on as we decided to take it to the next level, it was clear that we needed to help other people create similar programs because they were coming to me for advice and guidance and I I didn't want to turn anybody away. Um, So when we were uh, filing our 501c3 applications, we made that as part of our mission to help other communities and to be a resource for families, mm-hmm. other schools and educators and communities. To Great. Start, well, I want to talk yeah. about
0: that a little bit later on the show. Uh, this is Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM, university and community-sponsored radio. Thanks for listening. My name is Ali Nazar, and today we're interviewing Yaldam Madaber, the executive director of Golestan Kids. And I wanted to ask, so you... Um, you started to have these eight kids at the Persian Center, and you did the research and found there's not really any program like the one you're trying to create. Mm-hmm. So the next step, I would guess, would be to create a curriculum. Mm-hmm. Is that right? So how how do you go about creating yeah. one out of thin air?
1: Well, we did everything all at once. Um, there were a lot of moving pieces at the time. First, we had to find... Um, well, actually, when we were at the per- Persian Center, the curriculum was very teacher directed um, because we ha- didn't have a big picture in mind. But then when we moved into our current building, we started to, once we started to settle in more, we started to develop a much more rich curriculum that was, you know, just much more developed. And now it is actually quite unique and, and, um, Robust, I guess. I don't know what the right word is, but uh, so to answer your question, there were it wasn't like you know let's sit down and tackle the curriculum. It was okay. We got to fill the space. We got to fill. Now we had extra space. We had to get more kids. We had to figure out scheduling and um, how are we going to deal with invoicing and um, all of the logistics that go behind running a nonprofit and all of the logistics of running a preschool program. Um, and an after-school program, We're well, not just a preschool, but also an after-school program that was starting then because some of our founding kids were going to kindergarten. Um, and so in the beginning, it was just sort of winging it. But then as things started to settle in the school, then we could really put it, our a lot of work into it. And it's um, it, it was a collaborative process with the teachers and um, various teachers in various stages of our development. And now it's, almost complete like we run on an annual uh we have an annual curriculum and it's a monthly theme and though it's going to continue to evolve and become richer it's pretty much set we've we we came back full circle in september so it's great now we're repeating that's wonderful
0: yeah so what are some of the themes like what do you guys go over with the kids
1: so we start um in September, we start with me, myself, and my community. And then in October, it's me and my body. It's a unit on health and hygiene and your senses as well. Um, and then in November, it's um, different careers and vocations and how they relate to community. Then we move on. Just in December, we take a little bit of break and we talk about seasons and holidays and cultures. Um, we now, have is a, it
0: all is it all like um, it related to Persian culture, or how you're, it's just you're talking about? You're teaching the kids. These are what ages are the kids?
1: So the kids are two to five in the preschool program, and then after school, we use the same themes for the whole school. And after school goes up to. Fourth, fifth grade.
0: So you're teaching the kids some universal things that they need yeah. to understand. Yeah, but it's all in Farsi, right? That I don't think we I don't, don't speak a word of English. So yeah. this is Farsi, not inversion. a word
1: of English. But um, to answer your question about culture, uh, we do have a social cultural day on Fridays for the morning programs where we learn. Um, we basically teach them about one culture every week. It's actually we used to do it just basically pick a culture out of a hat. Um, every week, and then it felt like they didn't have much context. They learn about Japan, and then France the next week. So now it's uh, over a two month period. We cover one continent, and every week on Fridays, their their food relates to that culture. The projects that they have that day relates to that culture, so that they have an idea of the whole world. So what I tell people is that this is a program that's um, that's like if you imagine your ideal preschool or after-school program, whatever it is, it's an ideal program that just happens to be in Persian. It's not, the focus is not teaching kids Persian. They happen to learn it just by being there and being immersed in it.
0: Yeah, and to that point, you guys have non-Persian children who are now attending or on the wait list. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, we
1: do. We do. We can't bring them in all at once because when you have children who don't respond in Persian, then the it affects the dynamic of the class, um, so we bring in a few at a time, one at a time per class.
0: So you started out with eight kids in the playgroup at the Persian Center, mm-hmm. and now you guys mm-hmm. have evolved to um, how many kids?
1: We have over 55. 55 mm-hmm. kids, mm-hmm. and you ha- are not Three no years. longer in the Persian Center. No longer in the Persian Center, no. And we have a waiting list to 2014. Wow. Yeah.
0: Preschool is good business if you can figure (laughs) out the.
1: (laughs) It's actually, you know, people say that. And I do think with a a more traditional model it can be. But with our model it's actually not. We operate at a deficit every month. Um, And the reason being is that in order to ensure that the children are fully immersed in Persian and they're not all speaking English all the time, we have a really low teacher ratio, childhood teacher ratio. So our staffing costs are much higher than any other school.
0: And what is the ratio?
1: It's one to three for toddlers, and one to four for preschoolers and for after-school kids. And what kind
0: of? What's the standard ratios for preschoolers?
1: Preschoolers going to be one to four to one to eight, and um, oh, preschool one to four is actually very rare. Sorry, toddlers it's about one to four to one um, for preschoolers. Legally one to twelve, but I think most people it's about one to eight for most schools. One to ten, they'll have like a class of twenty kids sometimes with two teachers.
0: Wow! So the reason that you do that is, and the reason that you've you're configured as a nonprofit, which is that's unique in the preschool world, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. There um, are some. There it, it's not rare, but it is. It's not. It's not the most common.
0: And and what's the reason? There's a there's a well, there's a vision behind it right
1: mm-hmm. yeah the, a couple of reasons one is that um, I wanted all the decisions that were made for the organ for the school to be based on what's best for the school and not to be um, influenced by by profit uh, the other um, is that I wanted the school to become um, lasting organization that if I were to leave that it would con- it would still be here and um, and also I'm just I'm not a business person it wasn't my thing but I, and, and also um, practically speaking knowing that we were going to have a deficit we'd need to fundraise and it would be very difficult to do that as a for-profit organization we fi- we figured that out after we made the de- decision to be a nonprofit
0: and you were planning the deficit because <clears> you wanted to load ratios to be able to get the kids to speak for us. Yeah, safer. yeah. You're listening to KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM, streaming on the World Wide Web at kalx.berkeley.edu. This is Method to the Madness, a show from the Public Affairs Department at CalEx that explores the innovative spirit of the Bay Area. I'm your host, Ali Nazar. And that was an old Iranian folk song by the name of You Who Are Like the Long Moon in the Sky... And I played that because today we're talking to Yaldo Madaber, the executive director of Gulistan Kids, the first Farsi immersion program for preschoolers in America located in West Berkeley. Back to our conversation. And uh, I wanted to ask you about um, some success stories. So -hmm. you see all sorts of kids coming in with varying levels of exposure to Farsi, right? Can you share maybe a story or two of of kids who have come in and really, because, you know, everybody always says, oh, kids are sponges at that mm-hmm. age, right? You see yeah. that every day.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Um, boy, I wouldn't know which one to. <clears throat> There's one in particular that stands out. Um, is actually a college friend of mine has uh, three kids. Yeah, three kids and lives in Pleasanton, Pleasanton, and has two older girls. I think they're about seven or seven and nine, something like that, at the time, and a little boy, who, Amir, who's who was five at the time. And uh, he's married to a Tunisian woman, just adorable, wonderful woman who who's learned to speak Persian. And their kids didn't speak Persian. Um, I think the older girls understood a little bit, but didn't really not a lot. And, uh, at one point my friend was like, this is, this is like our only chance. We got to get these kids to learn Persian. And so I told him, well, bring Amir here. It was his last year of preschool. And Amir did not understand a word. Like you would just, you'd say, hello, how are you to him? And he kind of was like, you know, (laughs) had this look on his face. Um, such a sweet boy too. So he, he, uh, he decided, okay, we're going to do it. But I was like, if you do it, he has to come here a lot. to get full exposure. So they made the commitment, and they drove to Berkeley from Pleasanton every day, and he worked in the South Bay. So it was a, it was insane for them. It was hard, and they had two older girls that were in school in Pleasanton. We'd get out of school right like half an hour before Amir would get out of school. There was a lot of driving involved. Um, within a month, Amir understood everything, and then within by the time the second month ended, he was fluent. And he was with us his whole last year of preschool. And by the time he left, he was just this totally fluent kid. And one day, Ali came to my office. And um, he just he came in, and he just was choked up and teared up. And he's like, it's changed our relationship. I was like, I told you. <laughs> but it did. It was just changed the dynamic of their relationship because they connected in a different way. It was really special.
0: Yeah, that's what's so special about what you're doing is that um – you know, people who speak multiple languages understand that there's concepts that can be talked about, mm-hmm. ideas that can be talked about in another tongue that you can't really talk about in English. There's this different level of connection. It's not just because mm-hmm. English is lacking. It's every language has its own words, mm-hmm. its, own, its culture. Yeah,
1: that's true. I never thought of it that way.
0: Um, and so I think one thing that's I wanted to talk about with you is that you have a program as part of Golasan Kids, or it's a separate um, organization, the CoLab.
1: It's part of the same organization, but it's like a, it's a department, I guess you would call it. Yeah,
0: so a part of your organization that is mm-hmm. dedicated to helping other communities, and not just Persian, Farsi-speaking communities, anybody, yeah, anyone. embrace this idea of, of creating immersion programs, preschool immersion programs. So talk mm-hmm. to us a little bit about the, the CoLab
1: the collab we used to call it the Resource Center and people weren't they were like the Resource Center and just they wasn't doing it for anybody. So we did a little bit of brainstorming and came up with the name, the Heritage Language Collaborative. And it's exactly what that is. It's it's collaborating with people, be they families or other schools or communities who want to promote their heritage language in the next generation of kids. Um, so we work with families of any background. I just worked with a Taiwanese family and helping them maintain the a bilingual home. In different, you know, we all have different challenges in doing that, and helping them overcome those challenges. And then working with educators of different immersion programs. Um, our hope is to host workshops for. Starting off with local immersion schools, but then eventually national schools, and developing best practices because they don't really exist in that field. <coughs> Excuse me, and it is an emerging field. And then finally, working with other communities, um, and that involves both helping other communities start schools, be they you know small co-op programs, all the way to like a real school. Um, and also producing teaching materials and books and audio books and some music CDs. And, um, so right now we're in the beginning phases. I've been doing this work for the last three years that we've been in our new building and we became a non-profit. Um, but it's been hard to do that and run the school and the after-school program. Um, and try to keep a nonprofit afloat in this economy. And have two kids. <laughs> Yeah. Yo, by the way, you have two kids. I do have two kids. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, So, okay, my native tongue is Urdu. Okay, so let's Mm -hmm. say I came to you and I said, "I want to start an Urdu language school." Mm -hmm. You refer to best practices. What are like top three best practices for listeners out there? We hopefully have dozens and dozens of languages listening to us right now. Mm -hmm. So, what are the best practices that you can give people? Just, just you know, a few choice nuggets.
1: Um. Well, as a parent, I can. Would you like to know as a parent? Sure. Uh, as a parent, it would be to um, work, be consistent, and um, enable your children to develop the muscles and the habits to speak to you in your native tongue. Um, and one technique used is like a sandwich. It's called the sandwich method. If you have to use English, then you use your native tongue first, then English, then the native tongue. So, if you you're speaking about a ball and the child doesn't know what a ball means you would say toop in person ball, toop and um, another one is to really prompt a child to respond to you in that language Um, if they insist on speaking English and they always every child will get to a point where they'll want to speak English to their parent though my second child hasn't gotten to that yet, it's interesting um you, you just have them. You keep repeating it in in my case in Persian, and prompting them to repeat it, and you just keep doing it over and over again until they do. It sounds painful and terrible, and it sounds like you have a terrible relationship with your kids. But it's just it's just a little bit of effort, like everything else in parenting, that eventually becomes very natural and is actually less work than if you were to be a little bit looser about it in the beginning, less disciplined about it.
0: Okay, good tips. Thank yeah. you. Um, so the last question I have for you is, and I'd love to ask this of Uh-oh. innovators, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. What's the vision? So you're working real hard. It's been three years, and you've come a long way. Mm-hmm. You have 55 kids that you're you're giving this amazing experience to. So five years from now, what will it look like, in, in both from the Golestan perspective but also mm-hmm. from Colab?
1: Well, in five years – we will have helped build, why well, I always say 10 years, 10 schools. So, I'm not sure it's five years and we five say schools. 10 years, Cause okay. it's, yeah, yeah, 10 years is easier for the collab. Um, so yeah, we'd have schools all over the country, not us personally, but there would be schools that we will have helped establish however we can through consulting and sending the materials and things. Um, and, We'd have books published, several books published, and audio CDs and music CDs, and we'll have an annual workshop where we host people coming in from different parts of the country and brainstorming together. And the school, oh, I shouldn't even say this, <laughs> the school, There's some. there have been discussions and requests from parents and... Other educators talking to me about um, starting a charter school K through eight, and I've been you know I this it was it was a big big challenge to get to where we are now. My family paid a price for it. My husband was very patient with me. Um, so it, it's it's hard to say yes, but it's really hard to say no too. So we're we're exploring that, and my hope is that in ten years we'll have a team that can do that and I can help and we'd work we'd collaborate and it could be a Golestan school locally um, I'm not into having Golestans outside of the local area um, because it's hard to manage all of that but yeah maybe there'd be a through K-8 school in Berkeley
0: I'd like to thank Yaldimandaba for being on the show today to learn more about Gulistan, you can go to golestankids.com that's G-O-L-E-S-T-A-N kids.com this has been Method to the Madness on KLX Berkeley 90.7 FM. You can learn more about us at methodtothemadness.org. And to take us out today, we're going to let a kid from Gulistan give us a little Persian nursery rhyme set to Beethoven. Oh, humans in life, be kind to each other. Here on KLX Berkeley.
1: dáme, jak se dáme.